Welcome to a special edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We've teamed up again with Government Analytics to take a look at the state of the economy with special guest Kevin Page. He was Canada's first parliamentary budget officer. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Wallen, a senator from Saskatchewan, and I have the pleasure today of being your fiscal anchor through this conversation that we are going to have on the state and fate of the Canadian economy in the, um, well, in the midst of coronavirus. We are so pleased uh, at the behest of government analytics uh, to be here. We've got also with us on the line, uh, Greg McDougall and Steve Saunders. They are government analytics, the guys that crunch all those numbers. And we have our very special guest today, Kevin Page. Now he is presently a professor of political science at the University of Ottawa, head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, which is a think tank at the uh, university. Kevin worked as a civil servant for many years across departments, finance, treasury board, privy council, fisheries, agriculture, et cetera. And in 2008, he became Canada's first parliamentary budget officer, serving from 2008 to 2013. It was his job to invent the job and invent the office. And I'd like to begin, if I could, Kevin, with just a little bit of history. What was your philosophy and the understanding of what your philosophy philosophy should be at the time? Thank you, Senator. Actually, it's, it's great to be with you. So, um, you know, my understanding of the, of the philosophy was really, you know, it really comes from the mandate that was in legislation. Uh, there was to be a budget officer for parliament uh, to provide this independent analysis that they might not have seen before on you know, trends in the economy, you know, just costing of you know, you know, government legislation and just help with the overall approval of authorities for spending and taxes. So, and the philosophy that I had was really to be as transparent as possible uh, to bring analysis to parliamentarians and do our best to, to explain it. I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I think it was in the first year in 2009, that there was actually a parliamentary committee that said everything that you produce should be approved by MPs before it's published. Was, was that actually a recommendation? Yes, that came from a joint committee, House and Senate of the Library of Parliament, the office, uh, originally was located in the Library of Parliament as part of the Library of Parliament, uh, you know, certainly which was you know, a good starting place, again, when we look back. But, uh, yeah, the philosophy of trying to be independent but having all our reports approved by MPs really, really didn't connect very well with me. And you did have a decent budget, but you also, I think, experienced some budget cuts in the first uh, iteration of this organization. Where does it stand now? Yeah, it's a much expanded office now, Senator. It's um, several fold bigger than what we were in terms of just manpower. The mandate has expanded. Uh, it's now an independent officer of parliament. I was uh, an independent officer of the Library of Parliament. Um, it, um, it has, you know, the mandate's been expanded beyond the things I mentioned to include costing of platforms. It, it's a much bigger office and it's got good reputation around the world, I'm happy to say. Yes, it absolutely does. All right, let's get into some of the substance of, of where we are. I know I uh, read what your words after the uh, re recent throne speech, basically saying that difficult conversations are almost never about getting the facts right. They're about conflicting perceptions, interpretations of value and values. This is difficult when we're talking about actual numbers. Uh, can you give us your just overall view of where we sit right now as an economy? Yeah, you know, as an economy, like we have, uh, I mean, we as data people, we're always a little bit behind in the data. We rely on Statistics Canada, which is a great independent organization. So we have data that pretty much takes us through the summer, and, and but not very far into the fall. And when you look at the latest data, I'm like, we're um, in a very, very serious recession. Uh, something like of the likes I, I have not seen in my lifetime that really, you know, you'd have to compare much, a recession much deeper than 2008-9, much deeper than the recessions of the early 90s and, and early in 1980s. 
um, you know, probably something, and it'll be in the neighborhood for 2020, the neighborhood of 7% in terms of decline in, decline in GDP. Uh, we have these incredible vibrations in, in labor market statistics. We've seen the unemployment rate go from just under 6% to, to well over 13%, back down to 9%. But, you know, for people like you and I who live in small towns, who grew up in small towns, you know, the, you know if you look at just the employment numbers, we're some 700,000 uh, fewer employed than we were since last uh, February. So, you know, a lot of these reports from, you know, from PBO or from the Government of Canada, Finance Department, IMF, talk about scarring. There's a lot of scarring going on in terms of, you know, labor markets, in terms of, you know, investment in businesses uh, and just global relations. When you uh, talk about a recession like you've not seen, where are we on the continuum till you start to wor- use the word that begins with a D, which is depression? Yeah, there's, I don't think economists or uh, statisticians really have, you know, um, defined that, you know, that, you know, tipping point or that pivotal point where you move from. So, so some of those recessions that we had in, in the 2000s, early 1990s, 1980s were declines of about four or 5% in that range in terms of real GDP. So we're talking about something that's twice as big as that in terms of output declines. Um, so um, yeah, we're somewhere in between uh, a serious recession and what unfortunately people experienced in the 1930s at grandparents. We are talking about uh, deficit figures, uh, $350 billion. Yeah, so $350 billion is an enormous number. Um, I mean, the, the last you know, number that we saw, the last l- largest deficit we had was in the 2008-9 financial crisis. We saw a deficit of just under $60 billion. That included um, you know, a lot of supports for fiscal stimulus during that recession. So $350 billion, we're about a $2 trillion economy. It's in that 15, 16% range of GDP. Uh, we've never seen anything like it in our lifetime. Uh, government analytics, uh, Greg and Steve, have been tracking all federal, provincial, and territorial spending, and that total exceeds $1 trillion, uh, which of course accounts for some of the deficit numbers, but does not explain uh, the increased, the continuing rise of unemployment with that much federal and provincial spending going on. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's probably different ways uh, that people, you know, like government analytics and others can carve up these numbers. Like, how do you go from a deficit last year of, say, $35 billion to a deficit in the $350 billion range? And then, you know, even beyond, like, the, the direct fiscal supports that are well in excess of $200 billion, there's, you know, a lot of stuff that doesn't impact the balance sheet, but I'm pretty sure that government analytics would look at. These are uh, tax deferrals. These are liquidity measures that run through the Bank of Canada or through some of our, our, our crown corporations. Let's just get into that for a moment, the Bank of Canada, because what we have seen them doing is very actively use the parlance printing money, but really buying up the debt, buying up the debt of the federal government and the provincial and territorial governments because it's, it's not great debt and who out there wants, wants to buy it. Can we continue to do that at the level that they're doing it? Of course, that's the, the bank does that all the time, but this is extraordinarily high. At the same time as we see the Bank of Canada really um, getting into the whole, uh, talking publicly about social policy matters, and whether it's the environment or the need for continued supports uh, on the, over the long term for the population. It, can, can these things, is this a, a new role that's being carved out or is it in reaction to crisis? Yeah, I think, um, Senator, I think it's more a reaction to crisis, but it is certainly new in terms of just the, the sheer scale of the numbers is new. We, um, so this discussion of quantitative easing, like when the bank putting you know, government securities on its balance sheet certainly took place in 2008-9 in a very serious way. Uh, not just in Canada, really, but around the world. Um, but I think just the amount of it is, is, um, makes it feel like it is new. So we're talking, like you could see weekly statistics from the Bank of Canada. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, again, in a $2 trillion economy, just the expansion of the uh, government's uh, bank sheet. And 
we're moving into areas that go beyond um, federal securities, uh, provincial and municipal securities, uh, you know, a lot of some commercial securities as well. So it's a new, it's a much bigger role for the bank in terms of stabilization policy. And um, yeah, so it's the, it's a discussion that we're having now about what is the future role of the bank. It's there is a renewal of uh, their uh, mandate is taking place now. We're sort of we moved a long ways away from inflation targeting into something much more you know, focused on stabilization of, uh, of an economy in very unstable times. Just before I ask you about that inflation rate, I, I, I just want to put it in the broader context is is the spending and the activity on the part of government sustainable and is the activity of the Bank of Canada as we've just currently just discussed, is that sustainable? It's not sustainable at, you know, at the current pace. So, um, but again, I think it's, it's really, it can only be understood in the context of an economy that literally fell off the cliff uh, in the second quarter of 2020 in Canada and around the world because of the, you know, the need uh, by, you know, that was expressed by public health officials that we had to lock down the economy to spread the trans, you know, to slow the transmission of the virus. So it's only in that context you can understand, you know, these numbers that we're talking about. It's not sustainable. So we can't, you know, we, we can't, I think it'd be, it's impossible to think of running back to back to back deficits in the $350 billion range, 15 percentage points of GDP with, you know, and the just continued expansion of, of, of central bank balance sheets at, at this rate. So, I mean, I think when you know, we start to see these projections going forward, we see, you know, unwinding of these supports. Uh, we see, you know, uh, many cases, the role of the banks in terms of buying up these securities, easing pressure off the financial markets. They take their foot off the gas pedal. And yeah, just you know, hopefully we'll see, uh, you know, over the, by 2022, 23, a very different environment, much more a normal period of time. This argument, however, is still raging. We see it stateside, of course, but we see it in this country, the differences amongst and between the provinces about the degree to which you must reopen or have to reopen and the question of locking down to save every single life you can. There's no good argument, but uh, I'd like to know where you land on it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Again, we it's before this this program started. We were talking about the you know the uh, the debate in the United States last night uh, between the, you know, the President Trump and Vice President Biden, and I was think that was you know the two visions were quite clear there in the United States: a president that wants to reopen the economy, uh, a vice president that wants to listen very closely to what public health officials are saying and reopen, but prepared to kind of shut down if need be. So yeah, I guess it's it's a there's a large gray line, uh, I think, on this area with respect to the the, vi uh, the transmission of the virus. I think as we head towards the end of 2020, and we we see a number of possibilities with respect to vaccines, uh, and we start to, we assume that somewhere early in 2021 we'll be distributing these. Uh, there'll be vaccinations taking place around the world, and you know it'll take some period of time. But I think you know I think we're more in the world <clears throat> of reopening. Um, yeah, and we've seen already just the reopening of the economy from the second quarter, a big bounce backs in many sectors. There's some sectors like retail trade that are actually higher now than what they were at pre-COVID levels. Uh, you know, and there's uh, other sectors of the economy that weren't really even affected, like insurance in real estate, for example, have seemed to kind of gone through. And then there's sectors of the economy that you know, we're all familiar with, uh, accommodation, air transportation, food industries that are you know, double digit levels below what they were just months ago you know, in the pre-COVID period. So again, it's, it's, uh, you know, this recovery is gonna be bouncy. It's, gonna, it's not gonna be the same across all sectors. Uh, and yeah, as we were to find ourselves in a major spike before that uh, yeah, it will slow the reopening of the economy. I think one of the problems, and, and you referred to it, when you live in a smaller place, everything is much more visible, whether it's the, the presence of the virus or what's actually happening on the ground. One of the things that I saw was that the one-size-fits-all policy doesn't work because what's happening in a city in Regina or Saskatoon is not the same uh, in Wadena, Saskatchewan, population 1,300, right? It's the same in across Ontario. 
huge cities like Toronto with suburbs that have um, big uh, infection numbers and increasing infection numbers in small communities that are not touched by the virus. Have we got any more sophisticated in how we're responding to this? Um, I, I think we certainly as, you know, as a country, I think citizens we've learned, uh, most of us were learning as we go um, <clears throat> because, you know, it's, you know, this type of pandemic is the nature of it, the breadth of it, the seriousness that we haven't really experienced in over a hundred years. So it's, it's all new to us. Um, but I think we're adapting. I think if we're, most of Sorry, us. Sorry, I didn't quite catch that. So Could you please repeat it? We're becoming much more comfortable with, it was just the advice from public health officials, the um, you know wearing of masks, the cleaning of hands, the social distancing. So we are practicing this. We're seeing businesses across the country, whether big cities or small cities, adapting to the because they you know the need to stay open. Um, so yeah, it's not one size fits all, but also again with with improvements in in, in testing, I think we could find out where the spikes are taking place. Uh, we can address those spikes, and so I think yeah, there's been a lot of adaptation. Uh, over the past, you know, six, seven, eight months. Okay, I'm going to try and come back a little bit to the numbers. And one of the questions that I, I had a mark beside for myself, which was all this, uh, all this quantitative easing, all of the purchasing by the Bank of Canada of debt, et cetera, et cetera. One would assume interest rates would be going up at that point. They're not. What's your explanation? Yeah, I think you know, the, um, I think... You know, Earlier this year, um, the former Federal Reserve Chairman, um, Mrs. Yellen, said that the big game changer in 2020 is interest rates. And it's, you know, for, you know when people study the economics of deficits, it's the fundamental game changer uh, to understand deficits and debt in 2020 versus when my time in the Department of Finance in the 80s and 90s. So, Interest rates are like they're almost zero. Inter policy rates in the bank are just you know effectively zero. Like you know literally overnight rates at twenty five basis points. Um, we've got you know you look at the term structure of interest rates, the short term treasury bills, long term government bonds. Like the it's like it's on, these are at, um, they're just at basis points. They're very you know they're less than fifty basis points both of them. So I mean it allows I mean and the reason for this I mean it's probably twofold one. There is no inflation in the economy that, you know, that, you know, there is from a central bank perspective, there is like no price pressure, pressure, no upwards inflationary pressure. There's deflationary pressure. And so um, just enormous weakness in the economy. Economies, these are historic output gaps where the economies are vis-a-vis -vis potential. And, and I think lastly, I think central bankers are we're all, they're quite scared. There's so much debt, you know, uh, in both in the public sector and in the private sector In the private sector, both, non-financial and household that they know that you know the impact of raising interest rates in this environment would be catastrophic with this amount of debt and it would really potentially turn this recession that we talked about into a depression uh certainly a financial crisis which a lot of people do expect internationally we probably will have some financial reckoning in different parts of the world you know in the next year or two um just particularly in lower income countries but so, yeah, I mean, these interest rates are going to stay very low because there's no inflation and because central bankers know that the impact of raising rates would, would be just horrific on the economy. What's your assessment of two things we're witnessing, certainly in the larger cities, a real estate bubble, uh, the, all of this activity, uh, some people saying it's the result of changing lifestyle uh, needs or wants because of the uh, crisis, the COVID crisis, that people want to change their lifestyles. Others saying it's just a straight up numbers game. As long as interest rates are this low, this is the time to to buy, and it's fueled this. What do you think is going on? Yeah, certainly in a number of cities uh, and housing markets, uh, we're seeing what looks like a bubble, and that's really created from just a lack of supply. You know, there's just so little movement in the markets. There's so little turnover, people are not moving, they're staying at home in large degrees. And so, you know, for those first time home buyers, it's almost impossible to get in the market. Uh, there are bidding wars in cities like Ottawa, but also other cities as well. So really, I think from a supply and demand perspective, it's mostly really just limited supply uh, that is affecting these prices. I, I mean, I would assume that this will sort itself out like over the, the next year or so that um, 
ultimately like housing prices, you know, if you look at the long arc, they kind of move with the economy. And, you know, so these bubbles that we see in certain cities, they'll, they'll have to unwind. So I think people should be careful if they find themselves in bidding wars right now. And, but if you can, if you look at some of those really big cities, Pamela, like Senator uh, Vancouver, Toronto, it's it just, you know, you look at the debt numbers that are people are taking on the amount of mortgage debt, like that is not sustainable. Uh, and so we, that is a big fear that central bankers have. Talk to me a little bit about the stock markets and your analysis of their, of them. Yeah, I'm probably not the right person to talk about the stock market. Um, there are all kinds of great quotes from people about how uh, inaccurate they predict, uh, you know, events. Um, I definitely think in certain areas, like certainly in the case of the United States, that uh, big tax reductions um, and, and, you know, and all this liquidity that's been put out uh, by, by banks, by the, you know, the Federal Reserve has really, you know, act, you know, found its way into those financial markets, into equity markets. It's really boosted up prices. Um, I think, again, uh, there's, just, we're, there's so much change that's going to take place in the economy over the next few years. Uh, as we kind of, you know, sort through, you know, COVID-19, how do we deal with the pandemic? And then we start to deal with other very big challenges that I think the markets, there'll be a big correction in the marketplace. It's um, people need to be careful about putting their money, uh, I think, in the equity markets. But again, no one should take their advice from Kevin Page. <laughs> on, on just that topic. We'll, yeah, we'll there'll look be a few that. other topics. Just, uh, we are, uh, have gone now for the longest period, I think, in Canadian history without a federal budget. Uh, I gather what we're going to get, although uh, it's a movable object, is some kind of fiscal update. Can you give us your sense of whether or not um, the kind of spending that we're seeing is actually properly targeted at this point to people in need? I could tell you lots of stories about people that I run into that you know, the, the wealthier people, the people who have an accountant can figure out how to access rent subsidies and serve payments and all of those kinds of things. Regular, ordinary working people are having a hell of a time doing it. And then programs we've seen again this week, some very, very troubling numbers on infrastructure spending that we don't know where it's going. It's not accounted for. It's certainly not targeted. Is it working? It gives you kind of the sense that the government's throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Yeah, so I think almost like two very big issues there that you've raised, uh, Senator. Uh, one with that deals with the fiscal supports and, and how did, what happens to these fiscal supports uh, as we go into 2021 and we're still dealing with, uh, you, know, you know, these spikes in infection rates. Um, and then, you know, these other more fundamental issues like infrastructure. I would say on the fiscal support side, uh, again, the numbers are staggering in terms of how much money went out the door in such a short period of time, hundreds of billions of dollars, again, in the context of a $2 trillion economy, uh, dozens upon dozens of various programs. A lot of the money did flow, flow through two really big programs, uh, the SERB program, Emergency Response Benefit Program, and the Wage Subsidy Program. Um, and so, and, but there's, I think there is a lack of transparency, I would argue, Senator, that uh, around the evolution of these programs, I think uh, in Parliament, there's, we've seen this discussion. Um, do we need a committee that's, you know, that's really more focused? We need more details. Or is the government's response working? I know I've had been, you know, some connection with various media outlets. They're trying to find out, like, what are the cash flows month by month in these programs? Who are the clients? Again, this conversation, both with respect to households, but also businesses, who is getting that money? How does it break out by sector, uh, by, uh, by, you know, by income level, by region? And there's really little, you have to work very hard to get any information on these sort of month-to-month cash flows. So I think like, that's an important from an accountability perspective, but also uh, I think it's important that we want parliament and you know, other, all the opposition parties to be fully engaged on what is the right package of programs for 2021 for their constituents. And so we can't have that debate a rich debate unless we really know how that money is impacting. And ironically, again, I definitely found myself um, in a difficult place with Prime Minister Harper's government in 2009-10 with respect to tracking stimulus programs. But I, you know, to, to the credit of Prime Minister Harper, he was quite transparent. He was pushed by the parliament parties to release to have quarterly reports. And I think those reports were very valuable. And I think Prime Minister Harper was rewarded in 2011 with a majority government. 
I think in this current context, we don't have anything like the quarterly reports. So we don't really know the, the, the flows of these monies, again, by you know, the level of cash flows month by month. Uh, or the, again, who are these clients that are receiving Canadians and, and businesses that are receiving this money? So we're not having that debate. And I, I think, again, I, I, I wish, I, need, I think we need the opposition parties to be successful. On infrastructure, I think we have a longstanding problem there. Uh, I think Canada is finding themselves you know, behind the curve with respect to other countries like the UK, which have launched national needs assessments. They're working towards national plans, sectoral plans, uh, strong performance frameworks, you know, just much better data around these assets and the investments that are going against these assets so better decisions and more due diligence. It's, um, it's a longstanding problem. I think Minister McKenna, uh, she's definitely, uh, the, our, tra- our infrastructure minister is aware of it, but hopefully we deal with it in the context of the 2021 budget. But again, and it's been particularly clear, I think, in the infrastructure file, although there's been some moves by government to clean up the infrastructure bank and and bring in uh, new management at the top, if you will. And perhaps that will start to change. But the issue is the same, and others have raised that uh, with me today, knowing that we were going to have this discussion. Senator Elizabeth Marshall, who is uh, Uh, very keen watches government spending like a hawk. She says or asks, does government actually have the information that all of those things that you've just described about who's getting it, where, how much, what's the flow, what are the quarterly looks like, does government have that information and they won't share it or it's just been going out the door at such a rate they don't even know? Yeah, again, um, um, I think, in, in, again, two conversations. One, the infrastructure on one side, which is kind of, a, you know, um, I think needs to be a big part of a recovery package and we need to get to a better place. But I think with respect to the, um, you know, the month-by-month payments on these big programs like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit Program, the wage subsidy rental assistance programs, I think there are, et cetera, there are, you know, I think departments do have this data. Um, and so they are maybe they could be a little bit behind in, um, in for, you know, collating that data in a way that uh, really would explain to Canadians what is the impact and where's this money going? Is it really going to the right sectors? Um, but, you know, you could, if you look really long and hard and deep, like you can find various pieces of that data. I think on the case of CERB program, for example, like StatsCan publishes, I think it's a monthly basis. Who are those recipients? And, you know, it's um, broken down by province, I think perhaps even by age. And again, so we know that there's monies attached to those numbers of recipients, but we're not getting that data. So again, I think opposition parties, they should put together a frame. This is what we need to see to track this month by month. Again, every, these departments, uh, they need to work with their receiver general that basically every month there's a trial balance for these departments. They're responsible to provide that financial data by program. Uh, there's you know dozens and dozens of fiscal support programs. This data is being captured, but we are not seeing it. I, I just want to encourage people if they are uh, attending and part of our webinar today, please, please put your questions forward. I have a million, but I would like to include yours as well. And you can just use the the chat function there, and uh, I will actually be able to read them and, and ask uh, Kevin Page for answers. I want to take on this topic of, for a moment, the whole question of fiscal anchor, which I referred to earlier. What, what are and what should, what are we doing now? I think for a long time, we heard politicians on both sides of the political divide talk about the debt to GDP ratio, and that that was how you judged how well your economy was doing. It didn't much matter about the debt and deficit number per se. It was just the ratio that mattered. And now, of course, uh, that has gone out the window and is, is a very, very distorted number. So what do we do? How do we create some kind of fiscal anchor here? To, you know, in the old days, it was gold, tying your currency to gold. What, what are people like you thinking about that issue today? Yeah, it's... Um... I think there is a, you know, a way of thinking around this discussion of uh, anchors or targets or rules um, before COVID-19. And now we find ourselves in this period of time where um, it's like uh, there's so much uncertainty. It's like we could feel like we're, we're without any kind of anchor, target uh, or, or rule. 
but I think there's a sense from a lot of experts in this country, and I think Canada's blessed. We have, you know, these great former public servants like David Dodge, Don Drummond, or Scott Clark, Peter DeVries, that the, the true, like, experts that, you know, provide this sort of advice. Um, I think, like, our lessons learned from, you know, the 80s and 90s in Canada um, and perhaps uh, around the world is that, yeah, governments, you know, they have, there's a certain bias with respect to deficits. Uh, if they can have their way, they'd rather not raise taxes. So they'd re- they're, they're happy to, you know, to pile up the debt. So I think there's a sense that they need to be anchored in something. And yeah, and looking at debt over the medium term relative to income is a very common sort of anchor. So you can't, from year to year, you get these fluctuations, you can get thrown off. But some sense of being like in a, a yacht person, I, I'm not somebody that has a yacht, but you want if you're gonna, or maybe a fisherman who wants to kind of find his favorite fishing spot, they want to throw an anchor overboard. They want to be. They want to be in that zone. And uh, so, for different countries, uh, Canada is a very wealthy country. Um, you know, when you look at our you know, per capita incomes, our, you know, our standings in these UN indices with respect to human development. Uh, you know, if you look at bond rating agencies, even with our debt levels, even including in this current environment, we still get the highest investment grade from the major uh, debt rating agencies. So. But, you know, we know that as we look to head to the next budget, we're going to need a new uh, medium-term fiscal anchor, and it probably will be linked to debt to income. There will be all kinds of uh, – we'll probably need some kind of operational role to keep governments honest. We, that's something that we've been kind of missing, I think, but under the Liberal government since 2015, where, you know, pretty much they just operate on a declining debt-to-GDP ratio. And I think as long as the economy was growing, if there are any positive upside surprises with respect to revenues, they spent it. And so we found ourselves with really this sort of steady flow of deficits and people scratching their head. Are we really getting uh, value for money? So, um, yeah, and I think like there's been all kinds of ideas about how to operationalize that. But really, at the end of the day, what does government control? There's you know, some level of discretionary spending, which is about half of their overall program spending. They, could, you know, they will have to control spending in a much better way as we move towards the medium term. Um, and... You know, other, you know, people like David Dodge have focused on the carrying costs of debt, uh, which is really a number that is, I think most Canadians would be very surprised to, to learn that the carrying cost of debt is going down while we're adding hundreds of billions of dollars to our stock of debt. It's, yeah, it's mind boggling unless you actually sit down with a piece of paper and kind of wrap your head around what's happening to the stock of debt and what's, why are these interest rates going so, so low? Um, and um, but that's really been the case. The effective rate on you know, on, on on carrying costs of this debt um, is uh, has been declining steadily since the 2008-9 financial crisis. So our interest rate is going down, and really it's it's at record lows. And so yeah, we're adding to the stock of debt, but you know the, the public debt interest charges in nominal terms is not going up. Uh, it's in fact it's less than half of what it was in the mid 1990s right now, even though the mm-hmm. stock of debt is hundreds of billions higher. And this leads to this discussion that every, some parts of the, uh, the political spectrum are engaged in, the modern monetary theory, which is as long as interest rates are low, just keep on spending. We can't uh, afford not to. We should, we should just keep doing it. That, you know, to me, that's, that's frightening because there will be a day of reckoning. I agree, Senator. And again, but we, I think we need to, I think for me anyways, I find comfort knowing that it's important. I mean, it was a good thing that we had this sort of fiscal room or fiscal space to help Canadians, both in 2008-9, when we were in a world global financial crisis, and now even in a much more serious global pandemic. So we're helping people. And, um, you know, so these supports are preventing people, you know, insol- they're, re- you know they're reducing the amount of insolvencies, bankruptcies, they're reducing the amount of uh, of, you know, credit delinquencies. And so we haven't seen any movement in those really those numbers. And it's really thankful because the government is using its credit card. But going forward, you're absolutely right that um, we have to be very careful because of this debt will be passed on to future generations. All right. We have a question here from uh, Michelle Pamel, if, Pamel, if I'm saying that right, CEO of Credit Counseling Canada. I'll just read aloud, Kevin. To what extent is government looking at the models in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, who together have invested 115 million, I think that number might be bigger, but 115 million in financial help services to supplement their COVID-19 relief to address the debt burden facing Canadians? In other words, a longer term strategic approach to the debt question. 
Again, a question from Michelle from Credit Counseling Canada. That's uh, a great question. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, I can't think of a program and an announcement yet. Maybe we'll see it in the fall update. Um, and um, around, because you know, governments are, are well aware that um, there's a, a massive amount of debt that um, that has been built up even prior to COVID. And again, it remains to be seen how much more household debt will, will, will be generated uh, through, you know, this sort of these pandemic years, 2020, 2021. So uh, there's been some efforts in the past by governments to, you know, to improve financial literacy, these sort of counseling that, you know, many people are going to need. Um, I think it's a great idea. We could see a program, you know, that would be a good idea for the finance minister, Minister Freeland, to kind of think about something like that in the, in the fall update or budget. Thanks, Michelle, for that question. I want to come back to this issue of what we are seeing. You referenced it earlier, uh, the notion of some industries like airlines and the uh, hospitality industry just being absolutely decimated. Uh, companies like Amazon, of course, doing really well with people ordering things. How much of what we are seeing, and it may be impossible pre to predict while we're in the middle of it, but how much of what we are seeing is fundamental structural change and how much of it is dealing and coping with a crisis? Wow. Yeah, that's, again, you're asking me these hard questions again. Now I really am starting to feel like Donald Trump in 60 Minutes. <laughs> I have to oh, I'm way nicer than that. You are way nicer. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how um, certain trends like digitalization, how um, it's just, you know, it just like on steroids now. Like, you know, we're having this discussion over Zoom. Uh, I've taught courses this year completely on Zoom. Uh, webinars, everything on Zoom. I'm actually working from home today. I've spent a couple of days in the office, but when I go to the office at the University of Ottawa, it's like other universities across the country, they're pretty much empty vessels. So, and then, yeah, you, and then you drive through these cities, you know, as I drive through the city of Ottawa, but others, you know, it's, again, you, the roads are not busy. You know, all the restaurants that sit underneath these office towers are empty or closed up. Um, so people are working in a different way. So I like, I think, yeah, I was just was reading articles today in our local paper about the city of Ottawa, you know, the amount of money that's going to be lost because of lower transit uh, and transit fares. So a massive amount of adjustments. And, you know, people worried about, is it wrong to invest in public transit? You know, are we fundamentally going to start working in a different way? Like, again, you know, again, this is not, you know, by any sense of expertise, but I would assume a lot of this goes back. Like, we are social animals. People love to go to restaurants. People love to be with other people. It's just who we are as citizens. So I assume a lot of it goes back, but not completely. Like a lot of these international travel meetings that some of us will do, we're now I think we'll do less of it. We'll do some of it, but it'll be much less. Uh, I think there will be a lot more people working from home in the future that, you know, that have these sort of white collar type jobs. Uh, I grew, grew up in a blue collar kind of, you know, family. So like, you know, those people are still going to, you know, they're going to go to the construction sites and the manufacturing plants, et cetera. Um, yeah, a massive amount of changes. So what is structural and what is uh, cyclical sort of thing that I think um, we won't really know. Um, it could take years before we really know. But um, like this, I read a piece as well very recently where universities literally changed on a weekend. Uh, the business models literally changed on a weekend going from, yeah, we'll have people in classrooms to everybody's going to stay, you know, there'll be nobody in classrooms. But I think, you know, people are going to reassess, like, what's the quality of that? How important is that interaction? Is teaching the same way in a classroom? Uh, our business meetings, do we, how much time do we need to spend with our, you know, our colleagues in different parts of the world? And there'll be an adjustment. So, yeah, I, I can't give you a number, how much is structural, how much is cyclical, but it's, uh, it's a big game changer. If we see uh, the current situation continue and, and we've got airlines in this country, we are a huge, geographically speaking, country. I mean, just when you think about MPs and senators alone who have to, on a weekend, commute to Iqaluit or uh, Prince Edward Island or Saskatchewan, it's a complicated and costly uh, exercise. Airlines in very serious, very serious trouble. Should the government actually consider, and I'm kind of cringing as I say it, uh, equity investments uh, in these operations? Should it stay strictly as a bailout? How do we uh, reconcile that with some of the 
the green policies that uh, the government promotes at this time. They're, like there's an industry that really speaks to all of those issues in, in one place. Correct, yeah, it's, um, yeah, again, those numbers, you can look at, you know, what's happening to the airline industry, you go, go to Statistics Canada website, look at the output numbers, you can track down the airline industries, you can see that, you know, there's the enormous, how they have not recovered. There's been no bounce back or very little bounce back, almost no bounce back really in the airline industry. Um, we, I think we can all recall that in, in the 2008-9 financial crisis, the automobile sector was in dire straits. Uh, they needed, you know, big loans. There were, you know, some equity involvement of governments to some of the companies. Um, the, for the, to a large extent, we saw that the auto industry did recover. Uh, the government got its money back for the most part, even after writing it off, it got money back. So, I mean, again, there are going to be different opportunities. I don't think we've seen the, the, the support yet for the airline industry. We have not seen it. Uh, it's a sector that's going to need massive support. I think uh, people like me want to see senators like you traveling across the country, like working in Ottawa, but participating in other, you know, you know, conversations with Canadians, doing looking at policy issues. We want you to be crisscrossing the country, not uh, working the way we're working right now. So I hope a lot of it comes back. We got to save our airline industry. It still will be a, a big part of the future. And yeah, we need to find ways to make our, even our airline industry and other industries more green. I come from a, a farming community and of course what we saw is in the middle of the pandemic that the increase in the carbon tax uh, went ahead. There was, there was no um, consideration for the impact of that on farmers at a time when they were already drying grain from the previous year, like a very costly uh, point. Now we're talking about a second kind of carbon tax on that. And I guess I'll put it in the broader context of taxation um, in general. Is that a way to try and deal with the extraordinary numbers we're all going to be dealing with in terms of debt and deficit? Can we get it back that way? Or do we really have to grow our way out of this? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh... Yeah, this issue of the confluence of dealing with um, a pandemic and then knowing that uh, climate change is a major issue, again, behind both uh, the, the pandemic, uh, we have public health, you know, we have scientists, and the scientists are giving us strong advice to deal with the pandemic, and we're getting strong advice from climate change scientists, climate scientists as well. Uh, so we know that the time, they're both, you know, serious issues. I think, you know, being counters, like some of my colleagues can look at like the cost to the economy of a pandemic uh, in terms of loss of life or loss of economic output. But in the same way, we could we also know that these greenhouse gas emissions are being reduced this year because we've, we've shut down these economies. And we could also look at, we, when you look at the numbers, it's an incredibly costly way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, when you look at the loss of life and loss of uh, uh, industry. My sense is that we have to put a price on carbon Again, um, I, it's going to be it's hard on these industries. We have to make sure that these uh, that you know people like farmers or people that uh, other low income people are, are fully protected. But you know we need to see these prices. We uh, we partly got into this problem, or we largely got into this problem because we we avoided putting prices on these carbon emissions. So there's no I think there's no way around it. Whether we do it through cap and trade or through carbon taxes, I think the advice from some of my colleagues like Chris Reagan and McGill, the Eco Fiscal Commission, is that carbon taxes are a much better way. And that, you know, I think these scientists that look at it, economists that look at the numbers, and I'm not one of them, but we're talking about increases in these carbon taxes, you know, in the $50 to $200 range over the next 10 years. So they're gonna, it's a big adjustment that we have to face. So I think people at finance departments, environmental departments in, across the country, federally, provincially, are wrapping their heads around how do we uh, make these adjustments over the next three years is there going to be a green shift component to the recovery plan? I think there should, and that should include infrastructure and it should include subsidies for various industries that need to be protected. Uh, and yeah, more regulations. And we don't have a plan, the government promised a plan in the SFT for 2030 and we promised a 2050 plan in terms of getting to zero net emissions. But yeah, we're going to need to see those plans as well. And, and it's, but again, it's, again, we're all struggling with one crisis right now, but we know that this other crisis, every bit is existential for the, for the uh, Canadians. I guess the, the obvious follow-up there, though, is when we hear from uh, the government the importance of this recovery and rebuild 
having to be green at the same time uh, kind of leaving the oil and gas sector uh, floundering on its own. And I will throw in agriculture as well because they've not been the recipients uh, of aid. Can you do those things without supporting those two key sectors, which are very fundamental to, uh, to the economy's functioning, to the creation of GDP? Yeah, uh, I mean, the oil and gas sector is probably 10% of our economy. Uh, agriculture, a smaller proportion, but I mean, uh, we all depend on food on our table. Um, and so it's absolutely a vital industry. Uh, I think those industries are going to need a lot of supports. Uh, I think there's this broader ideological discussion about the role of the state going forward and how is that connected to the deficits? Was that part of that debate last night between President Trump and Vice President Biden? I think it is. I think, you know, again, I'm not somebody that, you know, that really is that sophisticated in these ideological discussions, but I think we will see for a period of time an expansion of the role of state. I think, you know, those sectors, oil and gas, they're going to, they're going to get smaller and not bigger if we're going to hit, get to zero net emissions. They're still going to exist decades and decades from now, uh, but they will not, we, we can't allow the sectors to kind of grow. We need to grow our renewable sector much faster. So, but they need massive amounts of supports. And yeah, are we prepared to support them? I hope we are. Uh, we have a question from uh, Bernie Etzinger here, and this is uh, a, a large question. Are the pandemic financial impacts uh, a pension and public sector issue in disguise? Um, again, could it be that we, we swell our, our the deficits and debt to such a point that um, that at least public service pensions, uh, they become jeopardized. Yeah, uh, um, yeah, yeah, right now, um, I mean, public service and, you know, and, and other, you know, mostly public servants benefit from these incredibly like rich pensions. Um, and you know, could it be that they, you know, that we need to, you know, as, as part of a broader restraint exercise, some austerity exercise years down the road, that uh, that component needs to be looked at. I think that's probably fair game. Uh, again, I don't know that we would probably do something like that, that over the next year or two where the economy is so weak. But I think there is a case for a spending review of the likes that perhaps we saw in the 1990s to deal, to get to a debt level relative to income that we feel more comfortable with. Again, if you look at the supports that we saw in 2008, 2009, and 2020, we largely benefited by the work of a government or two in the 1990s and early 2000s to reduce our debt to GDP. So we had the fiscal room to have these supports. Um, but we want future generations to have also fiscal room to deal with future crises. So again, there's going to have to be this bigger conversation about, you know, around debt. And could that be masking an austerity exercise in the future? Um, yeah, I think, yeah. So it's either we're going to cut some of these you know, spending programs, including public service pensions, or we're going to raise taxes or some combination of the two. I want to get to um, a larger and again, a more philosophical question. And I think we have time to do that. Again, I'll encourage people to uh, ask their questions through the chat function if they're um, uh, willing and able to do that. I want to come back to the book that you wrote. We discussed this a moment ago that the title was maybe not one you would have chosen, Unaccountable, Truth and Lies on Parliament Hill. What did you want it to be? Yeah, I Senator, I thought a better title would be the cost of indifference. I think around the world we've seen, certainly in the past number of years, democracies really come under strain. Uh, we've seen governments, political leaders take advantage of uh, their powers, their executive powers, uh, and weaken these institutions, these oversight rules. Even today, we've had this discussion. We're not involving opposition parties to the degree that they need to be operated on the, on the fiscal supports for, for COVID-19. So yeah, the cost of indifference, you know, democracy is government, you know, for the people, by the people. So we all have to be engaged. And um, so, yeah, we need, um, I, the cost of indifference was really a concern that we had, that people weren't paying attention. I mean, you have said some very strong things and, and I couldn't agree more, but real debate with analysis on Parliament Hill is virtually dead. Uh, that the, this, we have settled into a place of indifference and that includes civil servants that you just have to kind of offer up to the minister of the day a couple of options see what they choose the minister is going to change anyway next time there's a cabinet shuffle blah 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 i will change my department and pretty soon i'll retire out 
you know, that's even internally in the system, but also that very fundamental question of trust that the Canadian public looks at. Who am I going to vote for? Are they really substantially different? Watching the debate last night is you as you kind of highlight, I mean, for the younger generation, the millennials looking at uh, two old white guys in suits, um, not really inspiring. No, yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, that book was written a number of years ago. Um, I think 2013, um, 14. So yeah, it has much changed. Uh, probably not. I think to some degree, um, there's been a lot more books out about, um, you know, concerns about democracies around the world and, you know, more just, a, a, you know, this sort of turn towards more authoritarian style, style leaders. So, again, like one of the great questions we got today was a question about, you know, more support for uh, households to understand financial literacy. And, um, yeah, like, again, I have the opportunity to work with teach students, pub some public finance courses, and just, like, how do these institutions work? Uh, you know, why do we have checks and balances? Uh, what's behind these sorts of numbers? You know, are government's balance sheets different than household balance sheets? These sort of fundamental questions. I think we need more of that kind of participation. And yeah, I think it's time for bold thinking, really, as we kind of go forward. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's upside and downside risks to the economy, but like, there's some pr pretty significant downside risks. And to, uh, you know, after this global pandemic, that the economy is going to be incredibly weak. When people look at these numbers, we've seen in business investment really going nowhere for a number of years now in Canada, but in other parts of the world. Uh, we know that, you know, we've seen double digit unemployment rates for short periods of time, but we know that there's, again, we're, we're losing and we need to kind of readapt people in terms of their skills. So yeah, getting people involved in these debates. And again, yeah, fortunately we have good senators like yourself and other good legislatures in Canada. So yeah, we want you like engaging Canadians over the next little while, hopefully, encouraging those sorts of bold ideas and the lighting some fires on a public servants to kind of look at bold ideas as well. How do we do that? Is it going to come? I mean, later today I'm having a discussion with teachers who teach civics and public um, institutional uh, ideas to their students. So how does parliament work? I know I went through a school system where I didn't know anything about how the Canadian political system functioned, nor that it was different from the US, our largest neighbor and trading partner. And, and that was a process that I learned through journalism, not through school. So we need to start this way back. Yeah, um, I mean, I think your own story, to the extent that I know it, is certainly somebody that has been very open-minded, uh, self-learner, self-motivated, um, you came from very kind of a small rural area in Saskatchewan, and then you know you you were a major journalist for Canada, now a senator. You're dealing with these complicated issues. I think again, I think it starts as individuals. Like we all have to take, um, you know, in, you know what's behind some of these issues. You know, should I be concerned about democracy? What is democracy? Should I be concerned about climate change? You know, pick up books. You know, chat groups, uh, podcasts. Um, you know, I think it really has to be done at the individual level. And fortunately, we have senators like you that uh, will encourage us to do so. All right. Uh, do, you, do you actually see the importance of, I don't know, maybe in the, I don't know when we will get to the end of this, of, of some really significant assessment of what we've gone through, our preparedness, our ill-preparedness, how governments respond, what levels of government. I mean, we're seeing all the constitutional issues uh, of this country displayed in, in dealing with this pandemic, health, provincial jurisdiction, you know, transportation, all of these issues are coming to play. Can we use that if we had a proper parliamentary independent assessment of what we did right, what we did wrong, what went wrong, whether our response was adequate and fast enough, all of those things, do we need that? Yes. Yeah, I think we, there's so many lessons that we, you know, we can learn from this, um, this crisis and how we responded. Um, it was, um, you know, the, I think one of the titles in the government's SFT was the use of the word resilience. And so, yeah, we've been, you know, our institutions, um, you know, I think our nation has been, uh, we've, this is, you know, in Canada, but in around the world, like we've taken, uh, this has been extraordinary times. So what are those lessons learned? How do we better prepare for the next shock? We had a, 
a global financial crisis in 2008, nine. Then we have a global pandemic. If, you know, a few years ago, I think the World Economic Forum said their chances of having a, a global pandemic was, you know, they rated us in the top 10 risk, but did, were, we, were we really ready for that? Um, yeah, so on these bigger issues like climate change, we don't have a plan, like to get, to reduce, to, to hit our 2030 targets. There is no plan for 2050 targets. Uh, on some of these big questions like, you know, income support, safety nets of the future, um, you know, getting the balance right so that we were helping, you know, uh, deal with uh, income, you know, creating opportunities, but also support for people that lose their jobs in an economy where the nature of work changes fundamentally. So, yeah, these big debates, um, I think you could see that in some of the support programs, like the CERB program, trying to be, a, you know, a kind of a partial temporary stopgap income support measure. Um, but I think at the same time, it's, you could be optimistic as well, for the most part. Because, I mean, who would have thought that... Um, we would have had such, uh, you know, a year ago, you know, no one was expecting this pandemic really to play out. Who would have thought that governments could have produced, you know, 30 or 40 different programs, putting out 200 and better part of $250 billion in direct fiscal supports, uh, you know, all these liquidity supports from Crown Corporations, you know, as the government analytics says, upwards of a trillion dollars. And yet we did it, right? And I think, again, years down the road, we'll probably be able to assess what a difference that made. And yeah, I think, you look at these global numbers, you look at Canada and IMF context with other countries, we have, a, you know, we put a, a very large fiscal supports, very large liquidity supports, larger than most other countries. Our increase in the deficit will probably rank as one of the largest, you know, year to year increases in the deficit. Will it make a difference? Will it reduce the amount of scarring by that? It means, will it, can we improve business investment in the future because we haven't lost so many businesses? Can we, you know, quickly, more quickly restore our labor market because, uh, we've kept people whole, you know, in terms of, you know, household bankruptcies, et cetera. So, yeah, we, we need that analysis center. I, you know, and we need the Senate to, you know, and, and the House of Commons to actually lead that away. But, yeah, if we don't learn lessons, it would be a tragedy. That's, uh, I, some of the things are so obvious, the, a light being shone on how we deal with seniors and, and the residential circumstances that we foist upon them and, and charge lots of money for. You've talked about the programs, uh, your view of something like a guaranteed annual income in some form. Do you think that that now um, is going to go for, that that's an idea that is going to be embraced? We saw so many people that were not months away from bankruptcy or losing their home or being thrown out of their apartment, but weeks away. We've got an awful lot of people that are living very close to the edge. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of changing our fundamental safety net in this country, I think it, it's, it's going to be part of this conversation that I think we need uh, our, you know, the federal government to work with provinces uh, and municipalities and other stakeholder groups. I don't see it happening in the short term. I don't think it just flows quickly from the CERB program. And so sometime in 2021, 22, we'll have a universal basic income program. But there's been some of your colleagues, like um, uh, Senator Siegel, former Senator Siegel, who's been, you know, and, and Eggleton have been like real like, leaders on this front. And again, these are people that have, you know, different political backgrounds. Um, and so I think it probably is the future, but it's kind of like, can we, can I envision what carbon prices will look like when, you know, for, uh, you know, when we quadruple the, you know, the price? No. And could have, a year ago, could I have been pictured what Canada would look like in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, having lost 10,000 people, unfortunately, because of this virus. But yeah, so yeah, I can't see it, but I think for sure it's going to happen. Like we, we, we don't really have a choice but to deal, you know, but reduce the amount of carbon in our atmosphere. We're going to need better supports because the workforce is fundamentally different than when my dad, you know, worked in these sorts of pulp and paper mills and in forest industries. Uh, when, you know, these are long-term jobs, pensions, and that sort of thing. We have, you know, a lot of workforce is fundamentally different, more small businesses, more part-time workers. So we need very different income support programs. Uh, I think Senator Siegel will be proven to be, way, you know, a man way ahead of his time. He'll be, he'll be happy to hear you say that. Kevin Page, I want to say as we wrap up right now that uh, on behalf of everybody who is listening, I want to thank you for your service. When you have civil servants who work through the Department of Finance and the Treasury Board and Privy Council, 
uh, of your stature with your brain power, it is really very, very important. Now you're running a think tank, uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy, and I do think those things must stay joined at the hip. You can't have those discussions uh, uh, separate from one another. So I and and you fielded all these questions today, a full range. You've done an amazing job. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Senator, for the kind words. And really just thank you for your time. It's so great to, great to spend an hour with you.